So imagine walking into this church this morning and seeing all around you people you knew to be sorcerers, adulterers, people who had no respect for God whatsoever, employees who mistreated their, I'm sorry, employers who mistreated their employees, and people who were inhospitable to immigrants. And when the offering plates were passed, as they just were, they threw in what they thought was appropriate. Should God accept the offerings? Why, yes, most of you would say. Doesn't it belong to God anyway? Others might disagree on the premise that God prefers a person's integrity over their generosity. Now, that was the situation with the people in our text today. We will be in the Old Testament book of Malachi, the prophet Malachi, whose name means my messenger. And boy, did God have a message for his people through Malachi. We're in chapter 3, reading from verse 6 to verse 12. God himself speaking. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the, the fruits of your soil. And your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. What if we understood God's character? That's our first point. What if we understood God's character? Now, the passage that we just read is an excerpt from a broader conversation that God is having with his people. And in this conversation, God says some very blunt things to his people. Now, blunt things that are said bluntly usually have a way of offending people. I promise you this morning, I will not offend you. But I have no problem if God's word does. If God's word offends you, that's a completely different story altogether than me offending you with my style. So I promise you that I won't allow my style to get in the way of God offending you. And if he offends you, if he offends you, just do what he says. All right, so God starts this conversation by asking some things of his people. 
And for everything that God asks them, they come up with a rebuttal. They come up with an excuse as to why they couldn't do why God was ask, what God was asking them to do. And so God has to counter the rebuttal with a final word of his own. First of all, first of all God makes a very profound statement about his character. Now please notice that everything in this message is going to be premised on God's character. That's what we're dealing with. And so the very first thing out of God's mouth this, mo this morning in, his, in the text is a statement about his character. He says, I, the Lord, do not change. I, the Lord, do not change. Now think of that for a moment. God never changes. Another word for that is that God is immutable. He doesn't change. He cannot change. People and situations and circumstances change all of the time. God doesn't. He never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Systems and institutions, they fail all of the time. But God never does. He never changes. He remains the same yesterday, today, and forever. Politicians. Married people, family members, and even friends renege on their commitments all of the time. But God never does. He never changes. He remains steadfast in mercy, love, and faithfulness. Now, it is because God never changes why we are not consumed. If God were ever to change in mercy, love, and faithfulness, we would have been cut off long time ago. Look, look at what God continues to say in his word. I, the Lord, do not change, therefore you are not consumed. Now we hear the prophet Jeremiah screaming out the very same thing in Lamentations chapter 3 and verse 22. In that passage, which is the text from which that song just came that Christina spoke about, that text speaks of God being endless in mercy and compassion, unfailing. And it says it is because, God, because of God's unfailing mercy and compassion, it is because his mercies are new every morning, it is because God is unrelenting in his faithfulness and generosity that we are not consumed. That is why you and I have not been cut off. It's not because we have been so good. It's not because we have served God so well. It is because of God's character, because he is faithful and unchanging, why you and I have not been consumed or cut off. Now, I'm sure you'd agree with me that we often, we often like the unfaithful wife, and that is not to say that only wives are unfaithful. We know that, of course, that is not the case. But it is like the, we are often like the unfaithful wife who leaves her husband for another man. But God remains the faithful husband. And he says this in our text, return to me and I will return to you. But you say, how shall we return? Now, we all know that God usually refers to his relationship with us. He normally describes it in terms of a husband, the relationship between a husband and his wife. So imagine a wife being unfaithful to her husband, leaving him and going off with another man. And again, that is not to say that only wives do that. We know that men do that 
perhaps even more often than women do. But to better capture um, what God's heart is like, because we are typically referred to as God's bride, God's wife, and God is our husband. So imagine a wife being unfaithful to her husband and going off with somebody else, and the husband pursues her even to the steps of her lover's house, saying to her, I still love you, honey. You're still my wife. Come back to me. I, I forgive you. We can start all over again, and we can pretend that what you did never happened. But the wife responds, how can I return after the embarrassment and hurt that I've caused you and the shame that I brought upon myself? How can I return to you after all of that? And the husband says, return to me anyway. Come despite what you have done. I have already forgiven you, and I will never bring it up again. That is the character of God. That is what God's heart is like. God is unrelenting in mercy, love, and faithfulness. And I believe that somebody needs to hear that this morning. God is unrelenting in his love and his mercy and his faithfulness. And so the first thing that God says to his people has to do with his character. He says to them, I never change in generosity or mercy or love and faithfulness. Never change. Now I'm told that many years ago, a man who had been called to plant a church in the northern province of Saskatchewan, try saying that, <laughs> he came upon hard times. And in these hard times, he decided to go to God in prayer. And so he prayed to God to provide him with some eggs, bread, and milk. Good thing to do if you're in need, you go to God and you ask him. And you pray and you believe that God will provide. So that is, that's exactly what he does. Not long after that, a man came into his repair shop because he was doing, you know, repair work on the side. Came into his repair shop with a leaky tea kettle. Now, you know this was a long time ago because we don't have leaky tea kettles anymore, right? If one leaks, you kind of just get rid of that and you go pick a new one up. But this was a long time ago. So the man came in and he brought this leaky tea kettle and he says, I know I could get another one, but it's my favorite tea kettle. Please fix it. So the job was done in a matter of minutes and the church planter never even bothered to charge the man for the work that he had done. But the man pulled out some money from his pocket and insisted that the church planter take it. And so he did. The money was enough to go buy some eggs and some milk and some bread. After the man had left, the church planter started feeling very good, very proud of the fact that he had had faith in God and that he had asked God for stuff. And so he began thanking God for the fact that he had such strong faith. To which God replied, don't you wish that you had asked me for a pound of beef? Because <laughs> if you had faith to believe that I could provide eggs and milk and bread, I could provide even more than that. So God is generous beyond anything that we could ever ask or imagine. And it is because God never changes why we are not consumed. That's our first point. It's going to get a little tighter as we move on. 
you're probably going to feel your pockets as I move on as well. All right? That was just a soft part to kind of cushion you for this part. I'm just kidding. All right, here's the second point. What if we stopped robbing God? What if we stopped robbing God? And you say, Theo, how could you accuse me of robbing God? What do you know about me or my finances? How can you propose to judge me like that? And I would say to you that those are fair questions. I have no right to judge you. I have no knowledge whatsoever about your financial situation, and I don't need to know that at all. But here's the truth. I am not the one making the accusations. God is. Because this is what he says. Will man rob God? Here's a question, and it's, it's even preposterous to think that. Will man rob God? And yet, you are robbing me. I'm told that a mom wanted to teach her little child a lesson, a moral lesson. So she gave her a quarter and a dollar, and she said, when the offering plate comes around, please give whichever one you feel like giving. And so the offering plate did come around, and the child did put something in, and then after the service, the mother asked her, well, so what did you put in? And the child said, I was going to give the dollar, but then the pulpit man started saying that I should be a cheerful giver. And I knew that I would be more cheerful giving, you, giving the quarter than the dollar. So I gave the quarter. Now, how ludicrous is it for us to think that we can rob God? Will God who sits high and looks low, would he not know about it? How can we ever think that we can rob God? Now, this is a part, again, where you get a little defensive and you begin to feel for your wallet or your pocketbook to make sure it's still there. Notice, first of all, that God has a problem and God's problem is first personal. It's a personal problem. He says, you are robbing me. God makes that very personal. Now, that's not, that's not a mere insinuation, is it? That is an accusation, a very strong one at that. Someone calls it robbery without a weapon. Now, we rob God whenever we withhold from God that which is rightfully his. And when we withhold from God what is rightfully his, we not only rob God, but we're robbing other things in the process. When we do not faithfully tithe to God, we rob the church of its ability to carry out God's work. First of all, we carry out ministry to those who are believers, and we seek to carry the gospel to those who are still lost. We also rob the community and the world of hearing the gospel through the witness of the church. But even more personally, we are robbing ourselves of the blessing that comes from God when we give to God. So you see that this robbery is multifaceted. Notice, secondly, that God's problem is not only personal, it is pointed. God says, you have robbed me. And then when we hear that, our arrogant rebuttal is this. How have we robbed you? And God's pointed answer is this. In your tithes and contributions, you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. 
Now, God is speaking here of, the, of a principle that he instituted many years ago in the Old Testament, known as the tithe. And the word tithe means nothing more than the tenth part. In other words, whatever you make, God fully expects you to give him a tenth, to give a tenth back to him. That is his. That's not yours. That's his. All right? Now, some will rebut this as legalism. But I beg to differ. It is not legalism. It is obedience. This is the part where you say, amen. <laughs> See, you're holding on to that wallet too tightly for me. <laughs> All right? So this is, that, that tenth is God's part. It is not yours. And when you keep that, the Bible says that you're robbing God. It's not legalism at all. It's obedience. It is also an opportunity. And I find that this is the only opportunity in Scripture where God gives you and gives me the permission to test him or to prove him wrong. That by our giving, he would not stretch the 90% that we have to make sure that it covers everything else that we have to do during the month. And I heard a testimony just this morning of how that happened for somebody. In fact, I should have had that person preach this morning or even share that testimony. So it's not legalism. Now, by the way, if you've been listening to the news, you would have known that the 13 point, I'm sorry, the $1.35 billion mega millions jackpot, that's a lot. A $1.35 billion mega millions jackpot. That's how they refer to it. It now has a winner. It has a winner. It has a winner. What if he gave back to God $135 million of that? That would be obedience. That would be obedience. Now, for the record, tithing is not a tax. You're not, giving, you're not paying a tax. It's not legalism. It's not the leftovers either. It's not you going ahead and paying your bills and put, you know, making sure your investment account is taken care of and doing the groceries and all of that. And then when you are done, the little that you have left over, you give to God. It's not that. It's not a bribe either. You're not trying to buy something back from God. You're not trying to give him something with the hopes that he gives something back to you. It is not a fundraiser that the church does, nor is it an option. Well, then what is it? It is the first tenth of all of our earnings. The first tenth. That means it is the gross. It comes off the gross, not your net. It is God's plan for provision for the work of the church. That's how God gets his work done in the church, through your tithes. It is something that you give freely. If you turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 7 through 9, and by the way, whenever a preacher preaches on tithing, it would always seem that he has an ulterior motive in it, right? Because if you give, then he's taken care of. Now, I assure you, I have no ulterior motives at all. In fact, I don't even, Lynn can attest to this, I don't even know what you give. I don't look at your envelopes. I don't look at the finances of the church. Lynn does. He's the treasurer, so I... I don't, even, I don't even know. I have no ulterior motives. But this is what 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7 through 9 says. Paul, in fact, teaching the church on the principle of giving and tithing. He says, each one must give 
as he has decided in his heart. So that's, a, that's, that's willingness there. That's not by compulsion. Not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. In other words, God loves a person who gives hilariously. That's the Greek word for it. You give cheerfully as if you're, you're laughing your way to giving. That's kind of the sense of that. But here's the part that really grabs me about this. He says, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. You know what that says? When you give to God, God is able, I don't know how he does it, I just know that he does it, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that you will have all sufficiency in all things at all times. That is God's promise to you when you give freely. Here's our third and final point this morning. What if we honored God with the full tithe? What if we honored God with the full tithe? Now, if God has a problem with us that is personal and pointed, then God has a simple and comprehensive solution to that problem. Now, God's solution is going to involve several things. I'm going to go through them very quickly. It is going to involve a plan, a person, a proposition, a place, a purpose, a provision, and a protection. I'm going to go through each one. But I'm first going to refer you back to our text where God says this. Because I think each of these um, is included in this text. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil. And your vine in the field shall not fail to bear. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord. So here is the plan, first of all. God says, bring the full tithe. That's the plan. That is one-tenth of all of your income, not a portion of it. And don't just send it either. Bring it. In other words, God is more interested in what you give. He's interested in you. So, so you bring it. As you're coming, bring it. So that's the plan. The person, that person is you. You bring it. You bring it. Now don't worry about what somebody else is bringing. This is between you and God. I don't need to know how much you're giving. I just need to know how much I'm giving. Because you see, you are only accountable to God for you. I'm so glad about that. I don't have to say, well, Brother Gary made so much and he only gave that. I have, to say, I have to stand before God and say, God, this is what I made and this is what I gave. I'm accountable for me. So that's a person, you. The proportion. Everyone gives a tenth regardless of what you make. That's proportional, right? I am so glad that I don't have to give a million dollars because I don't have it. <laughs> I don't even have a tenth of that, all right? So it is proportional. If you make it, give it. You give what you make. Give a tenth of what you make. That's the proportion. 
And so Paul teaches this on the first day of the week, in 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 2, he says, on the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper. That's proportional. So if you are successful to the extent of your success, that is how you give. Let's look at the place. Bring the tithe into God's storehouse. This is a metaphor for the local church, the church that you attend, the church where you are spiritually fed. Storehouse tithing, which means giving back to the church of which you are part, that must be your priority. I think it's only morally... Um, can't find the word I'm looking for. It's only fear that you do that, right? That you, you tithe where you attend. But storehouse tithing does not preclude giving to other ministries as well as, you know, the Lord prospers you and as you want to give. But your local church should be and must be your top priority. Let's look at the purpose for tithing. God says this, that there may be food in my house. In other words, so that we may help our church carry out the ministries to which God has called it. And that involves ministering to believers and getting the gospel to the lost. That's the purpose why you tithe. And then God is going to make a proposition, which is this. He says, put me on trial by your tithing. Who, who does that? Who says that? Who, whoever gives you an opportunity to do that? And God, God says, yes, this is my pro proposition. Give me a tenth and prove me wrong. Put me in trial, put me to the test, cross-examine examine me, all of which are legal terms. And see if I won't pass the test with more than flying colors. Here's a provision which is related to the proposition. See if I won't open the windows of heaven for you and pour down a blessing for you until there is no more need. In other words, until you find that the 90% that you have left after you've given me my 10%, I will help you to stretch that so that it covers everything that you intend to do for that particular month. That is God's provision. And then here is the protection finally. Because you see, how many of you realize that giving, in giving a tithe to the Lord, that indeed contains a protection for you? Because here's what God says. God says, I will rebuke the devourer for you. In other words, whatever has the potential to devour your livelihoods or your assets, God promises to rebuke it. That's a promise from God. In other words, he promises to protect you and to protect what is yours so that the devourer cannot take it. That is God's protection for you in return for your obedience in giving him a tenth of your earnings. Here's our bottom line this morning. Tithing allows us the opportunity to trust and test God. And God will never fail that test. If he failed that test, he wouldn't be God. All right? He will prove himself faithful. Now, there are three things that you must do in response to hearing this message. The first thing that you must do is to give your life to God first. 
Look, that's the priority. See? Because God is more interested in you than he, is, than he is interested in what you can give him. So I'm calling you to trust God today with your past, with your present, and with your future. And I want to say to you this morning, as I've said before, that God never changes in mercy, love, or faithfulness. And if God never changes, that means that you can trust God with your life. I think that that what I think that what that means is that you give God the seat of government of your life. And that is your heart. That is your heart. I want to ask you very boldly this morning, without asking you to close your eyes as I normally do, but who would be bold enough to say, God, today I want to give you my life. I want to give you my life. Maybe you've never done that and you want to do it for the first time. I want to challenge you this morning and to ask you, wherever you're seated, and if you're watching us online, to find some way of indicating that, maybe sending us a text or email afterwards to let us know that you did this. But, Lord, but if you're here this morning and you want to give your life to Jesus Christ, can you do so by putting your hand up? Amen. Amen. See anybody else? I see that hand as well. Three hands. Three young men. Three young men. Let us pray together. Father, there are three young men this morning, all in their 20s. Well, in fact, two in their 20s and one in their teens. They have raised their hand as an indication this morning that they want to give you their life for the first time. God, there is joy in heaven over their raised hand, and there is joy in our hearts as we pray for them. We ask this morning that the Holy Spirit would make clear to them what they're doing today. That you would seal them to yourself, forgive them of their sin. Make them your child from this day forward. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I celebrate with you three men, young men. And I'm going to ask if you just meet with me very briefly in my office, right? You're not going to go to the principal's office, I assure you, right? <laughs> I don't even like to say in my office because that sounds like a little threatening. But because there's privacy there, we'll, we'll talk. We'll talk there. Amen. All right. Here's the second thing that you must do as a result of hearing this message. Bring your first fruits to God's storehouse. Now, you know that the word first fruits is an agricultural term. It refers to the first from your harvest. If you were a farmer and you planted crops in an agrarian society, then the first, you know, yields and the first from the harvest would be given back to God uh, as a tithe. Now that translates in today's society into giving God the first portion of your earnings. And so that means before you write the mortgage check, and we know how important that is, or the rent check, and we know how important that is because if you don't write it, you're going to find yourself on the streets probably. But even before you did that, and before you pay the bills, and before you shop for groceries, and before you set something aside for retirement, now all these things are important. All of them, and God knows they are. But before you do any of that, bring the first tenth of your gross earnings to God's storehouse. 
Now, we know that we live in a modern society, and so the, you know, the only way of giving is not necessarily to bring it as you did this morning. Some people give online, and um, that's allowable too, but all that to say, that must first be given to God. That's God's portion. So you trust God that the 10% that you're giving to him is going to be well-managed. It is going to be used um, for God's work in the church. It is going to be used for the support of pastoral staff. It is going to be used for the support of missionaries, for discipleship programs, for outreach, and for the maintenance of this building. So you're going to trust God that that 10% is going to be used that way. But then you're also going to trust God that even though you're now left with only 90%, that that 90% is going to be more than sufficient to take care of all the other needs that you have. I thought that everybody would say amen for that. <laughs> seems like I got to preach. A, seems like I have to preach a little better so that I can get your amen. All right. So my challenge then is for <laughs> my challenge then is for you if you have never tithed before to start tithing. Because you always have to start somewhere. And God is not going to say, well, you never tithed before, so I'm not going to accept, you know, that you're starting now. Start somewhere. If you've never done that, start doing it. And if you've been doing it, I want to encourage you, encourage you to continue doing so. Because God has a blessing for you as well. Finally, I'm going to ask you to put God on trial. Serve notice to God that you're putting him on trial. Hold God accountable for this promise that he has made. This promise that he has made is that he will rebuke the devourer so that it will never be able to destroy your livelihoods or your earnings. He will never be able to destroy your marriage or your family or your health or your general well-being. Put God to the test and hold him accountable. Obey God by tithing and then sit back and watch God do his part. And if he doesn't do his part, and I assure you that he will do his part, but if he doesn't do his part, then you can hold that against him. Let us pray together. Father, we are so thankful for the richness and the authority of your word. It calls us to obedience. But it also calls us to partner with you and to an opportunity to see you work in our church and in our lives. And God, we pledge our obedience to your word to do exactly what you've asked us to do. And we thank you that we can count on your provision and your blessing and your protection. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.